The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through mission, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. Good morning, Restoration Southside. I'm so glad that you're here with us online this morning. It's a delight to continue our study of Ecclesiastes. It has been hard as the writer of Ecclesiastes pokes holes in all of the things that we find meaning under the sun. And he continues to do that today. Last week we talked about how we could chase wisdom and it still won't be enough. And today we'll talk about chasing pleasure. And no matter what form of pleasure we're looking to have fulfill us, it will not be enough. So let's pray and ask God to bless our study of his word this morning. Lord, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? I thank you and I praise you for your word. And I ask that you would move powerfully by your Holy Spirit. There are hard realities within this text which show us and expose us for people that looking for meaning and pleasure. And I pray that you would rightly convict us, but that you would also leave us with hope. It's in the matchless name of your son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Friends, you've heard of the band U2, potentially the most famous band of all time, certainly of my generation, and maybe their most famous song. Still haven't found what I'm looking for. Wanted to read a few of those lines to you because it's poignant to what we're discussing in Ecclesiastes today. I've climbed the highest mountains, I've run through the fields, only to be with you, only to be with you. I've run, I've crawled, I've scaled these city walls, these city walls, only to be with you, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I've kissed honey lips, felt the healing in the fingertips, it burned like fire, this burning desire. I've spoke with the tongue of angels, I've held the hand of a devil. I was warm in the night, I was cold as a stone, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I believe in the kingdom come. All the colors will bleed into one, bleed into one, but yes, I'm still running. And then he says this, you broke the bonds and loosened my chains, carried the cross of my shame, of my shame. You know it, I believe it, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. In these powerful words, Bono communicates that he has had opportunity to have the fullest and richest of lives. And yet, even so, he still hasn't found what he's looking for. The author of Ecclesiastes is telling us the same thing. He sort of works through, marches through the pleasures that a human heart can enjoy and says, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. This isn't just for those who don't yet know Jesus. It's even for those who do know Jesus. To recognize these things that we seek meaning and pleasure in won't be enough. And they were designed to not be enough. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Isn't it scary how true those words can feel to us even today? We all struggle with chasing pleasure. But because of how we are designed, we must confess that pleasure is not enough. Look with me in verse 1 and 2. It says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, 
It is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? He starts off saying, I searched for meaning in life and couldn't find meaning in life. I searched for wisdom and wisdom didn't gain anything. And he says, so now I'm going to have fun. I'm going to enjoy life to the fullest. I'm going to go through every pleasure that I can think of, pleasures that are still available to us today. And he acknowledges it was also vanity. It's emptiness. It won't fill him all the way up. It won't make him all the way better, even as someone who believes. We tend to think that, yes, yes, that's true until you have Jesus. But honestly, this is what life is like. Even when you have Jesus, you start to recognize the things that we find pleasure in aren't enough for us. And he starts by talking about laughter. Laughter, he was going to enjoy himself. He said of I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? He, he tried to laugh himself into enjoying his life. Let the good times roll. He just wanted to have a good time and see if that would fill him with meaning. In my generation, my own heart is completely convicted by this. If we're honest, we just want to have a good time. We want to have enough money so that we can have a good time. We want to be in a relationship meaningful enough so that we can have a good time. We want to laugh and play. We have seen all of the failures and all of the idols in money and in business and in power. And Generation Z has sort of looked at that and said, that's not what I'm after. I just want a fun life. I want to have a good time. And yet, the author here tells us it's meaningless. There won't be a day where you wake up and think, I've laughed enough, I've had enough of a good time, I don't need anything more. Jim Carrey, who battles with spirituality and depression, comments often about his own personal philosophy of life. Jim Carrey, who's one of the funniest people in our generation, he said this, I, I believe that I had to become famous, you know, this idea and get all this stuff that people dream about and accomplish a bunch of things in order to give up my attachment to those things. It's part of the evolution of the ego is to spend the first half of your life acquiring and adding and thinking you can add to yourself and it looks great. He says, when you get a cool car and you've got good, nice clothes, you know and you're something that people admire, but then Carrie says this, it can never fulfill you. You can be happy. You can't ever be happy. It's not what will fulfill you. Jim Carrey, who has the wealth and the personality and the gifts to have a really good time, and when he honestly looks at his heart, he recognizes it's not enough. We hear similar things out of the mouth of Brad Pitt. Pitt said once in an interview with Rolling Stone, I know these things are supposed to seem important to us. The car, the condo, our version of success. But if that's the case, why is the general feeling out there reflecting more impotence and isolation, depression and loneliness? If you ask me, all I know is we gotta toss this. We gotta find something else. We're headed for a dead end, a numbing of the soul. And I don't want that. 
the writer of the article asks him, so if we're heading towards this kind of existential dead end, what do you think should happen? And Pitt says this poignantly, hey man, I don't have those answers yet. The emphasis now is on success and personal gain. And I'm sitting in it. I'm telling you that's not it. I'm the guy who has everything. But I'm telling you that once you've got everything, you're just left with yourself. I've said it before and I'll say it again. It doesn't help you sleep any better and you don't wake up any better because of it. Powerful words from Pitt and from Carrie, all testifying to this reality we find in Ecclesiastes 2 that there's not enough happiness that will make us feel full. There's not enough things and pleasures that will make us feel full. The author is kindly telling us, stop chasing the wind. No matter how much you laugh, there will always be more sadness. No matter how much fun you have, there will always be difficulties and suffering in this broken world. And for people who have everything and they're sitting in it and they're saying, this isn't enough. It's the same perspective of Solomon, a man who literally had everything and it wasn't enough pleasure for him. Friends, what are the ways that you're still seeking pleasure and meaning through fun and laughter? What are the ways that you're denying the reality of this broken world because you're trying to laugh it away? He doesn't just poke holes in laughter and happiness. He also pokes holes in alcohol. Look with me in verse 3. He said, I searched my heart with how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. He says, okay, if laughter didn't do it, laughter is ultimately madness and folly, it won't fill you. Perhaps it's through drinking. It's through alcohol. Maybe if I drink wine and cheer my heart and cheer my body, maybe then the rest of all of this will seem more manageable, seem uh, like it has more meaning. And he confesses ultimately to lay hold of the folly. I was trying to see what was good for the children of man to do under their days of their life. And we have done this too. We have done this too. We have looked for alcohol or other things to numb us from the reality of this world. We have embraced it and saying at least it's not other bad things so we can throw ourselves into it. I know this personally. J.P. Sears, who's a funny cultural commentator, he makes videos that sort of poke holes in funny things. One of the things that he's made a video on about how to be more of an idiot. He says this about drinking, tongue in cheek of course. You don't just wanna drink unintentionally. You wanna drink intentionally as a way of de-stressing yourself. Here's the wisdom here. Drinking alcohol is actually very stressful to your body, but you feel less stressed the more you drink because it numbs you to your stressful feelings. So because you're an idiot, you get to feel less stress the more you stress yourself out with your de-stressing technique of drinking. And that's how it helps you be more of an idiot. He's playing with the idea that we're looking for something to numb us that actually stresses out our lives even further. Surely you know someone who's been wrecked by the pains of alcoholism. And he's telling us here that alcohol won't fill you. 
it won't take away that gnawing feeling you have in your stomach. Recently, Ben Affleck has come out with a movie called The Way Back, and while it's about him being a basketball coach, it's also a powerful story about his battling an alcohol addiction. The movie is even more powerful because in Affleck's own life, it's been part of his story. Even out of his own words, it's wrecked a lot of things that were meaningful to him, including his marriage. There's a scene in the movie where he is sharing with his wife about his alcoholism, and he says, I know that I failed you. I know that I failed our marriage. I know that I failed our son. That's the meaning that can be found at the bottom of a bottle. It won't make anything else better. If this is a struggle for you, as it can be for many of us, how are you fighting it? How are you reminding yourself that alcohol will not make it better ultimately? So Solomon pokes holes in the idea of laughter or a good life being enough. He pokes holes in alcohol as it being enough. And then he even pokes holes in creativity, in art, in music, in architecture, in nature. Look with me in verses four through six. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks. I planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. He says, if alcohol won't make me happy and laughter won't make me happy, maybe achievements, these creative, beautiful parks and gardens, maybe all of that for people to come and look and be in awe of my power and my achievement, he says, ultimately, it's empty. Whatever he's built will ultimately be torn down. And we need to hear this too. If you're like me, you think, I'm gonna work hard and build a good life, some meaningful achievements so that I can look back on my life and so that my kids can look back on my life and say, there was a great man. And ultimately, Solomon's life falls apart despite all of his wonderful achievements. It's like everyone who retires finishing and thinking, I don't know if that was worth all of my time and money, worth all of the dinners that I missed at home. What he's saying here is the great things that we can do through art and through music and through creativity and through gardens and through architecture, it won't be enough. Have you ever worked hard in your yard and been so proud of how it looks, enjoyed it so much and barbecued outside and listened to music? And then when you walk out the next year after spring has come again and you realize it's a total mess, achievements and gardens and arts will not make us whole. He then turns his attention to money in verse seven. He says, I built, excuse me. He says, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. I first of all want to clarify that in this text, God is by no means endorsing slavery in the same way that he's not endorsing drunkenness or uh, laughing your life away. 
Solomon is just reporting in his own time and culture what it was he did with his money. It's important that it does not endorse slavery in any means. But what he's saying here is I just wanted more. I just wanted more. Have you ever experienced that? This sense that if you could just make 10,000 more dollars, then you could go on more trips and then you'd be happy. If you could just make a little more money, then you could finally buy a house and stop renting and then you'd be happy. If you could just make a little more money, then you could get rid of the old car that you're embarrassed by and get something new and nice. Money is always calling for our attention to give it more and more is never enough. Solomon may be the richest person who ever lived and all of his wealth and all it could do for him was not enough. My first experience of lavish wealth was in another city. People there were rich, seriously rich. And I kept saying to myself, I know money can't make me happy, I know that, but I'd sure like to try. And I think that's how many of us feel. We know in our heart of hearts that wealth ultimately won't bring us true inner peace and happiness, but we'd still like to try. When I was a pastor at Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, someone graciously and lavishly donated a membership at the country club. We were so encouraged and blessed by this, a place for us to play tennis and for the kids to swim. And we were given this membership for free. So they're touring us around the grounds, introducing us to our new country club that we had done nothing to earn. And we walk and we look at the tennis courts and the pool and the workout facilities and the dining halls and the patio and the bar. And just as we walked outside finishing our tour of our wonderful new free country club, I noticed that there was one set aside, this one area in the parking lot set aside for golf carts only. People that would drive their golf carts in from their homes. And without a second's notice, I said, wow. Now we gotta get a golf cart. Can you imagine that? Lavishly given a free country club membership and after 10 seconds of enjoying it, I can think of something else that I need that would make me more happy, a golf cart. It's indicative of what's inside of us that we think we need more to be happy and more is never enough. I want you to notice that in your own use of money. Is more ever enough? Just enough more to finish your college loans, just enough more to have a nice house, just enough more to have a nicer house, just enough more to be able to take some nicer vacations, and no matter how much it is, it's never enough. Money also will not bring us ultimate pleasure. And he even mentions this too about music. And I know that's fighting words to say that music can't fill you, make you whole. But that's what he's referencing here. He says this, I got singers, both men and women. What he's saying is that the king, he could have basically personal choirs all over his gardens, all over his property that would sing and the sound would carry over his land so that there would be this sweetness to while he was out enjoying the beauty of it all, he would also be enjoying the majesty of music. And he's saying, I could even pay for that and it still wasn't enough. 
Didn't you have bands you loved in high school and in college? Bands that you just loved the way that the music made you feel. And yet you haven't turned to those bands in a long time. It's because even music and all of its glory and grandeur isn't enough. We need a new song. We need a new top 40. We need something to make us feel alive again. So money and music aren't enough. And then he turns powerfully, Solomon, and says sex is vanity. It's meaningless. It's not enough. Look in verse 8. He said, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. It's as if all of these pleasures have been leading up to laughter and wine and money and arts. It's been leading up to possibly human beings' greatest pleasure in sexuality. And Solomon said, I had access to it all. I had all of these wives and all of these concubines who literally do whatever I asked of them. And it wasn't enough. It's not enough to fill the hole in his heart. It's not enough to fill the hole in his heart. I know that you've experienced this too. If I could just have one more experience of intimacy, one more partner, one more feeling, one more desire that's met, then I'll truly feel happy. And then you wake up and the world's a little heavier and a little darker. And for some reason, you experience sadness because you know this thing that you've gone all in on can't actually make you happy. And I'm not just talking about the immoral type of sex that the Bible will teach us about. I'm talking about biblical, godly, within marriage sexuality, and it's not enough to keep you whole. The alarm clock will still go off. The kids will still need breakfast. You'll still have to race to work. No experience is enough that you can say, this is it. I can die. I don't need anything more. Sex and love is not enough to fill the hole inside of our hearts. I have this shameful memory in which Aaron and I were meeting a couple out for dinner in a different city, in a different season of my ministry. As we walked up to this couple, I realized that I noticed the wife of the couple and noticed her for a second or two too long. She was beautiful. I finally caught myself and sort of turned to look at the husband and I noticed that he was noticing Aaron, noticing her a little too long. And then he and my eyes met. And as we looked at each other, we sort of looked and then looked away. There's just this poignant moment communicates so much about pleasure. It's that we were both there with our beautiful wives and yet wondering if the grass is greener on the other side. Him looking at my wife and me looking at his. And it shows you how fleeting desire and passion and sex can ultimately be. You can be happy in your marriage, happy in your sex life, and you're still wondering what the grass is like on the other side. Sex is ultimately empty, just as money and wine and culture and laughter 
And power and fame is empty too. Verse 9, he continues, So I became great and I surpassed them all, all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this is my reward for all my toil. He's saying, I made a name for myself. I made a name for myself. I I was famous for my wisdom. I was famous for my money. I was famous for my sex life. I was famous for my gardens. And he says, yet all of this was chasing the wind, that it came up empty for him. That's what he mentions in verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. After having as much pleasure as a man can have, it was all vanity chasing after the wind. Nothing to be gained under the sun. He's saying power and fame, that's not enough either. Saying yes to yourself is empty. The reason that it's so important for us to acknowledge this is because I know in your heart, because it's in mine, there's this sense that if we could just have a little more, a little more pleasure, a little more laughter, a little more passion, a little more desire, a little more fame, then our lives would be meaningful. And Solomon, who had all of those things, says, I got to the bottom of all of it, and it was nothing. It was chasing after the wind. So friends, what are the pleasures in your life that you are extract, trying to extract meaning from what are ultimately going to come up empty? Is another sexual experience really going to be enough to fill your heart? Is more money or more wine or a bigger name really going to matter in a hundred years? As we talked about a couple of weeks ago, S. Wayne said, no one will remember you. And he said, those pleasures which God gave to bless you were never meant to fill your heart, to complete you. And you have to know the difference. Saying yes to ourselves is empty. Zach Eswine also said this, foraging for pleasures we rebel as teenagers or in midlife crisis. On our walls we put up posters or take them down. We take our jobs or we leave them. We drink our booze or we give it up. We take our medicine or quit it. We undress with strangers or we refuse to do so. Marry our spouses or leave them. Have our kids or estrange them. We dye our hair or we leave it natural. We change our clothes or garage sale them. We save our money or we spend it all. All of us hoping that in some gas station in life, a figurative or literal lottery with the winning number Wait for us to find it. Isn't that convicting? This sense that we're waiting for things to radically get better even though we're trying the same methods over and over again. Don't we honestly think that if we say yes to each desire, if we had the resources, we could truly be happy? The movie that I like from several years ago. There's a quote that says, isn't that what being young is about? Believing secretly that you would be the one person in the history of man that would live forever. 
That's what we all live in, this denial of our imminent death, our denial that these pleasures can't really fill us. And so we deny that and we act young and we act like we can live forever. And he says it's all just a chasing after the wind. One more quote from Eswine says this, even wisdom along with the proper use of creative joys cannot spare us from what happens under the sun. The wise will die just like the fool. Even if one wisely turns from mud pies to God, life under the sun will not necessarily reward them for it. Listen to this. Neither the foolish use of sex nor the improper enjoyment of it can save us. Because one chooses not to drink or to drink wisely will not prove to be the answer that the situation under the sun ultimately needs it to change. Hedonism won't work, but neither will morality. No matter how much better morality is, we will have to look beyond both for true gain. Neither wisdom nor the folly of human beings can make the world right again. That's why I'm pointing to us to this fact that the Christian use of these pleasures or the unbeliever's use of these pleasures are not enough to make the world right for us. And we have to look beyond it. We have to look to one who denied himself pleasures. He took on self-denial, self-emptying, so that he could rescue us who throw ourselves recklessly into these pleasures from Philippians 2, it says, Have the same mind as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. And being found in appearance of man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's what the pleasures are ultimately exposed for us, that we run after these things, and yet our God denied himself because he knew that we would embrace these things with a total lack of self-control. Jesus chose being a man of sorrow since he knew we would laugh sickly and sardonically. He chose holiness because he knew we would get drunk. He chose purity because he knew we would wallow in sexual sin. He chose poverty because he knew we would chase after riches. He chose restraint because he knew we would be reckless. He chose the hard way since we, he knew we would always take shortcuts. He chose self-denial because he knew we would choose self. He chose the cross and he did it. The self-denial, the taking pleasures and denying them, he did it because he loves you. And that's why he's better than the finest of pleasures, the most intense of pleasures we could ever find. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you that each one of us has gotten caught up in any or all of these pleasures and trying to extract the meaning of life from them. We confess to you that we see that they're empty. Would you help us to live that way, to be blessed by them, and yet not overwhelmed and ruled by them. God, we ask that you would use these pleasures to heighten our sense of what our God is like, but never use them to replace who our God is. We thank you for your word, 
And we ask that you would bless us and grow us and help us to run from these pleasures when they're a distraction from your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.